It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app and podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we're here to break down all that is happening with respect to the New York Giants. A reminder, all of our shows this week are pre-recorded, so we won't have an opportunity to take your phone calls, but you'll still have a chance to interact with us. You can submit your questions through the Giants.com mailbag and also use hashtag Giants chat on social media on Twitter. We'll be reviewing those questions all week and we'll be answering some of them later on in the program. As a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So this week, we're going to turn our attention to the upcoming Giants opponents during the regular season, and we're going to focus on one opponent each day going in order of the schedule with the exception of the division rivals, which we'll save for last. So today, we'll focus on the Broncos as the Giants will kick off the season at home against Denver on Sunday, September 12th at MetLife Stadium. To get more into the Broncos and what to expect from that team this season, we are now joined by the Broncos insider for KOA News Radio in Denver and host of the Broncos Daily Podcast, none other than Brandon Cristal. Brandon, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Everything's great, and you know, I need to update my Twitter bio to include the new podcast I'm doing with Broncos defensive lineman Shelby Harris called Shell Shock. It's, it's Shelby's podcast, and he asked me to co-host it with him. So for all uh, the folks out there that want to know the way a Broncos player and some of his teammates might think, he's one of just a couple active players that's doing a podcast right now. I know Patrick Peterson's doing one, but uh, Shelby's going to do it every week during the season. So it uh, should be a lot of fun. It's called Shell Shock, wherever you get your, wherever you get your fine podcast. Very nice. Well, we will certainly get more into Shelby Harris a little bit later on as we get into the defensive front, but I want to start, obviously, with the biggest storyline, Brandon, and, of course, that's the quarterback situation. Drew Locke entering year three. Teddy Bridgewater they acquired from Carolina. They did not draft a quarterback. I know we have yet to start training camp, but from what you can read into OTAs, the offseason program, how do you think, at least in the early stages, this is playing out? Well, it's funny because Vic Fangio tries to urge us every time we talk to him to not look into this too much. And then Pat Shermer spoke at the, uh, I guess, the last day of minicamp since they canceled the, the final practice to have a field day and, and kind of said the same thing. And they, they both said both quarterbacks look good. But when we finally got to watch a full practice in that first day of minicamp after he was watching the first day of each week of OTAs, through lock, there was a, a bit of a gap that Teddy Bridgewater closed a little. And maybe that's understandable because – Drew Locke's in year two in this offense with Pat Shermer, and even though some of the concepts are familiar to Teddy Bridgewater, he got here pretty late. He's certainly locked on to Jerry Judy, but through spreading the ball around, he was working, you know, they keep rotating, so he was working with the second team uh, plenty throughout the spring, and what we saw in that first day uh, in, in the final week of the minicamp practice, he was lighting up the first team, Justin Simmons and Kyle Fuller and, and Kareem Jackson and, and the rest of that secondary to – Backup tight ends, third string tight end, tight end fullback, and, and then Noah Fant jumped into the second group. The twos were beating the ones, uh, and Drew Locke was just kind of locked in, uh, for lack of a better term. And so what you see with them is a higher ceiling with Drew Locke and certainly the potential for bigger pitfalls 
with Teddy Bridgewater, even though he was stretching the field a little bit early on in camp. But by the time we got to mini camp, we'll see what training camp holds. He was checking it down, taking what was there, which is fine. And for a defensive coach like Big Pandrew, that may be enough. But I think the excitement of what Drew Locke can bring, if it all clicks for him, you'd rather have the guy that's going to take the chances and, and put more points on the board. You know, Brandon, some months ago when Aaron Rodgers started to gripe bit about his situation with the Packers, a lot of people thought that the Broncos would be his number one location if it wasn't going to be California. I should say California first. But is there still a feeling out in Denver that Locke and Bridgewater are in this competition to be the guy opening day? Or is that ghost of Aaron Rodgers still floating around in the clouds? I- I've never believed he's going to leave the Packers, but that just happens to be me. Well, Paul, I think to answer the question, and maybe it's cheating, but I think it's both right now. And even teammates talked about that. Von Miller talked about it at his pass rush summit in Vegas uh, before that final week of minicamp. And and teammates have talked about it. Justin Simmons said, hey, if Aaron Rodgers shows up, great, but I'm not going to deal in hypotheticals. And I think that's the way a lot of folks in Broncos country, the excitement draft day when Adam Schefter puts a report out, and then you hear that uh, the Broncos are high on his list, and you also find out the Niners called. Uh, I, I think that that's all, all very exciting, but until Aaron Rodgers gets off a plane in Denver to come play for the Broncos, and I guess his, his wife or fiance's family has a house in Boulder, but that's the, not the same as showing up in the private jet right outside the, the private airport. Happens to be steps from the Broncos practice facility. So until <laughs> until he gets off after, off the Broncos plane, uh, ready to to go to work, I, I think it's silly to spend too much time thinking about it. And so you have to focus on who's in the building right now, and so that's going to be Locke and Bridgewater. If that changes, great. And look, every time they've had a Hall of Fame quarterback late in their their career, the Broncos have won Super Bowls. So the track record is there, uh, but it seems silly to plan for Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I think it's just kind of wishful thinking. And even those of us cover him, in the back of our minds, uh, it's all along good. You know, James Palmer from NFL Network is based in Denver. He has not spent very much time in Denver during the football season in recent years because they haven't been really relevant. And so he, he said to me the other day, he goes, look, if 12's here, he goes, I don't have to leave all, all season. Maybe on the Broncos bye week, he'll go say hi to Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. But otherwise, <laughs> they'll basically li- live there. So it, it's fun to think about, sort of like the Deshaun Watson rumors were fun to think about until all the stuff off the field. And if that gets settled and he still wants out, maybe he becomes a Denver Bronco at some point. But I think you have to deal in the reality and, and whether he stays in Green Bay or not, Aaron Rodgers isn't walking through the door now. So you have to decide who's going to help you win the most games, and for Vic Fangio, potentially keep his job. Is that Drew Locke or is it Teddy Bridgewater? Brandon, if I can ask you a follow-up on this, because in New York, we get these crazy draft uh, rumors and trade rumors that happen all the time, and most of them are incredibly unrealistic. From a realistic perspective, do the Broncos have the type of capital that would be necessary and the cap room that they would need to make a deal for an Aaron Rodgers? Or is this whole thing just preposterous from the get-go? No, they do have the cap room. They're one of the teams right at the very top of the list with the most cap space right now, and everyone thinks it's earmarked and likely will end up being four guys like Cortland Sutton and Bradley Chubb on extensions and bonuses and new deals maybe as early as the end of training camp. But with those types of deals, you can also push a lot of that money back. And if you were to trade for Aaron Rodgers, you could also rework a deal there, right, and, and spread his money out. But they're, they're in really good shape cap-wise. As far as capital, what will be interesting is if the Packers ever decide they're officially open for business, well, then what are you willing to offer? And certainly the Broncos will offer as many first-round draft picks as they can, and I think at this point it's three. But are you willing to go over the top with players? And that's what we talked about with Deshaun Watson when people like John McClain, who are – 
you know, I don't know if I respect anybody that covers the NFL more, kept saying, oh, well, the Jets make the most sense, or maybe the Dolphins. Like, well, sure, and the Texans want you to say that because they have the most draft capital and, and the most attractive picks at the time, right? But let's say the Niners wanted to get in the mix, and they threw in Nick Bosa. I'm not saying they would. The Broncos throw in Bradley Chubb. And, again, I'm not saying they would or a Jerry Judy or, or another player, Noah Fant. Once you start putting real names out there, that's, I think, what can help sway a a negotiation, but I don't think the Broncos will be the only team. If the Packers say they're open for business, what's stopping the Tennessee Titans from sending Ryan Tannehill and all their first-round picks? And I know they're going to be low picks because that's a pretty good roster, uh, certainly on offense now with the addition of Julio Jones, but I think there's going to be more teams than we think, even if we hear Aaron Rodgers would like to come to Denver. But Denver does have the capital to, to make the to make the move if, if they want, especially if they throw in these young players but, and they can afford the draft picks. They haven't, they, those aren't earmarked for anything else. But uh, I don't know if they get into a real bidding war if, if they'll end up winning. At the same time, we know Aaron Rodgers can blow it up. He can say, I don't want to go to Nashville. I don't want to go to New Orleans or uh, wherever. And I think they will trade him the AFC uh, if they do trade him. But uh, they, they can't make a deal done for either of those players, Watson or, or Rodgers, if they truly became available. That is the beauty of the NFL offseason. The speculation never ends, as you just laid out, Brandon. I want to return to the internal candidates and at least the reality that Denver is dealing with right now. And you alluded to this earlier, the fact that Drew Locke is entering finally because he didn't have this luxury in college and he didn't have this luxury in his first two years of the NFL where he's got the same offense, the same coordinator, the same scheme. And we experienced that here with Daniel Jones. Pat Shermer was here where there was a lot of movement around Daniel Jones. How much of an advantage do you think it is that Shermer and Locker together for the second straight year, it's a bit more of a conventional offseason? And could that very well be the difference in putting him over the top? Well, I, I certainly you know Drew thinks so, and, and people who are proponents of Drew and, and, you know, talking to people in the building, I think Mike Shula, the quarterback's coach, is a big Drew Locks fan. And when you see the talent, just seeing them side by side throwing against, uh, you know, routes on air, warm-up stuff, you see that Drew Lock throws a different ball than Teddy Bridgewater. And so for all of his faults, which I think are mostly between his ears, you can see the physical tools that Drew Lock has. No one's going to confuse him with Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen. But he's probably in that next tier of, of big-armed quarterbacks. And because that Missouri is running for his life and he was relying on talent, uh, he developed a lot of bad habits. He's changed his footwork some. He spent time with Peyton Manning in the offseason, uh, as he told us this week, reviewing more uh, than, than looking ahead, but looking at what he did differently or what he did and what he could do differently. And just like you said, the storylines never end. The narrative isn't going to change until they go one and four or whatever, and everybody's banging the door for Teddy Bridgewater. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Uh, but then you're going to say, well, I guess being with Pat Shermer for year two wasn't wasn't the problem. But the one year he had consistency, this is going back to high school, was his yeah. sophomore into junior year at Mizzou, and he gets Josh Heupel for the second straight year and throws 44 touchdown passes, which at the time set an SEC record. And, you know, I just mentioned Peyton Manning. He had a pretty good run in the SEC. He never threw 44 touchdowns. I know the game's changed a little. But we know that the, the talents there, as I just, just touched on, and, and the upside's there. The question is, will all of it click? But the one thing that Drew did say this week was he's not spending any time learning the offense. It's just reinforcing. And, and with what he's been doing away from the building, whether it's studying on his own and or when he's grown with teammates before they got in for that phase three work on the field or what they'll do in the five weeks here before camp starts, uh, that he knows what he's doing. Instead of guessing what he thinks he needs to do, he knows exactly what he wants to do every time he goes on the field. 
Let's talk about the receivers, the guys who are going to be catching the other end of those passes. Look, uh, we all know Cortland Sutton is a quality NFL player, my goodness, but he's coming off that toward ACL. Then you got to worry about Jerry Judy's drops. I saw a number that said he had 14, which was second in the NFL last season. Those two guys need to be at their best, don't they, if this passing game is going to get cooking? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Let's throw one more name in there, too, that wasn't relied on very much. But K.J. Hamler, they took him in the second round. And I bet somewhere on that list that you were looking at, his name was pretty high because he had drops as well. They just weren't as they weren't as high profile necessarily because he was a second-round pick. He's five foot nine and... And he's not Jerry Judy coming from Alabama as most people's favorite receiver in the draft, including mine. And it was obviously a very good receiver draft. But when the Raiders at 11 took took his teammate Henry Henry Ruggs third, and you end up with Jerry Judy falling in the Broncos' laps, everybody in Broncos country was really excited, especially with Cortland Sutton coming off a Pro Bowl season. Of course, Cortland goes down in that second game in Pittsburgh where he tears his ACL and MCL on a bad throw from Jeff Driscoll that – Cortland's trying to make a tackle on the interception, and the rest is history. But Cortland's looked really good coming off the injury. You're always going to be concerned until you know for a fact that uh, a player's 100% and is showing no ill effects. He didn't do any teamwork in the spring, and I don't know if he'll be cleared 100% day one of training camp to go full speed. And I think it'd be silly to to let him, uh, right? You, you might as well ease him in, even though at that point you're looking at he's probably just 10 and a half months removed from the surgery, so he's, he's in better shape than than most, but but those guys are really the key. And, and Judy, you know, you mentioned it, Paul, the drops. He didn't drop a thing in the spring, like I said a little earlier. He's Teddy Bridgewater's favorite target, and and when you see how open he is, it's understandable. We saw the same thing though last year, especially because you know how they treat rookies; they don't get to run with the ones as much. When he was running second and third team, he was just putting on uh, a clinic with how to run routes and get open, dealing with uh, guys that maybe didn't even make the roster, right, if we were to go back and review or certainly didn't make the opening day roster. And so this year he kind of picked up where he left off, but they talk about his renewed dedication and focus. Vic Fangio touched on that this week, that that he's really trying to build off of, of his final game of the year because he had that terrible game against the Chargers in the in week 16, game 15, and came back the final game against the Raiders, had a 92-yard touchdown and caught a bunch of passes, didn't have any drops. So at least he had that to help propel him into the offseason, and it looks like he may be living up to the hype, but but that drop number, when you say it out loud or you remember it, if you're a Broncos fan or someone who covers the team, it, it was a rough year. And one more name about the ranks. I mentioned that Drew Locke had a connection with him this week. First-round pick from the same year uh, Drew Locke was drafted just a couple years ago. Noah Fant is back. And then Drew's favorite target at Mizzou, Albert, Albert O, Albert Oakley-Ebenham, the speedster tight end, who also, like Noah Fant, ran the fastest 40 time. He's coming off his ACL. He may not be back week one, but they like where his progress is, and they think he's ahead of where they wanted to be. So that's five real targets on the outside that Drew's going to have a chance to throw to. Or Teddy, uh, right? I guess I can't just kick Teddy off. I've got <laughs> Drew starting back number 12 in New York. Maybe I'll be wrong, but if I'm right, I've got some other folks who cover the team that are going to owe me a few cases of beer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it adds a little bit more intrigue into the week one opener between the Giants and the Broncos. There's no doubt about that. The other name that I wanted to throw out, Brandon, is Tim Patrick, because it was interesting. He really had a career year last year. And I guess my question is, how much is that a product of Cortland Sutton goes down? Some of the young guys have the case of the dropsies versus maybe him beginning to scratch the surface of a larger role in this offense moving forward. Yeah, I think the biggest issue with Tim Patrick is going to be just figuring out who you're taking off the field to put him out there. It's one thing when Cortland Sutton's down and 
Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler are going through those rookie struggles that, that we saw. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so with Tim Patrick, it's the complete opposite. It was funny because you know, Pro Football Focus, which is quick to throw up tweets promoting their side and their metrics, uh, had one during the year or during the year during the you know the off season saying, here's a list of all the top receivers that didn't have any drops, and Tim Patrick tweets at him, I guess zero drops didn't make the list. And Tim Patrick <laughs> had uh, a career year and had no drops, the complete opposite of Jerry Judy. Tim Patrick, to me, is also a name that could be part of a potential trade if one of those quarterbacks we talked about did truly become available. But they really like him, and talking to their personnel people, uh, when, when camp started last year, it was like, oh, he's not – He's not a bubble guy. He's going to start. He's going to play a lot. And we did see that throughout camp. He was starting opposite Cortland Sutton. And again, part of that was letting those rookies earn their earn their stripes, if you will. But uh, I think that Tim Patrick should demand playing time at the very least. And you may see a lot of Judy and Hamler early on rotating. And, and then, again, with Cortland Sutton, if he's not 100% ready to go or if you feel like uh, – I'll put easing him in in quotes, but you don't want to give him a full 70-snap workload in weeks one, two, three – uh, four in that first month in September, then you might see Tim Patrick play a little more than he might later in the year if everybody's healthy and those young kids are figuring it out. But but Tim Patrick is a player, and for a kid that, that bounced around after the Ravens caught him and was on the Broncos practice squad, living in Garrett Bowles, his college teammate's house, his whole first year in Denver, uh, he, he really did make a name for himself. And if the Broncos can't find a place for him, there's other teams that would happily take him, and they could probably actually get a real draft pick back for him if they wanted to move him. How do you expect them to use the running back core? We know what Melvin Gordon can do. He's proven in this league now for a number of years. But Javante Williams out of North Carolina was a heck of a guy in college. and They made him a second-round pick, so you have to feel they're going to use him. Well, and they traded up five spots to go get him because they heard rumblings at Miami, uh, who's sitting there between Atlanta and and Denver, I think Miami might pick 36. They weren't going to let Miami take their guy, so they jumped from 40 to 35 and go get Javante Williams, Pookie, which is his nickname that I think he said his grandma gave him. Uh, I don't know how many of his teammates are calling him Pookie yet. Uh, but he was there all off season in the OTAs. Melvin Gordon makes a habit of not being at OTAs and, and training on his own. He was there for the mandatory minicamp and uh, was sporting a fresh haircut, cut off the dreadlocks, and said his dad told him that was going to take away his power, but he had been wanting to do it for a while. So we'll see. I think they're going to run Melvin Gordon into the ground. Now, Javante Williams is too good to not get on the field. Uh, as you mentioned, Paul. And so I, I think, and, and we'll let your listeners that are going to be looking at a fantasy draft, I think if you're in a draft and you're looking for a back-end first running back or your second running back, Melvin Gordon should be high on that list. I think he's going to have all the touchdowns. If you're in a keeper league, grab Javante Williams in those in those rounds in the in the you know, middle middle to late rounds in the teens, and then next year you'll be getting a steal because I don't think Melvin Gordon will be back and Javante Williams will be the featured guy. But for a guy that split his carries uh, with Michael Carter the last couple of years in North Carolina, he's familiar with that. I don't think he's going to be demanding playing time or, or, or be a malcontent. I think you're going to learn from Melvin Gordon. And unlike last year where it seemed like every week, and there was plenty of times that they weren't out there together, I think Philip Lindsay missed seven games uh, and Melvin Gordon missed one. But we would ask Pat Shermer, hey, what's the running back split going to be? What's the workload going to be? We're not going to ask that every week, at least not early on. If Javante Williams is playing out of his mind, then maybe we'll start. But it's Melvin Gordon's job, and it's Javante Williams' role to spell him. Uh, they're similar in size, kind of similar in build. I think Williams may be a little quicker. Uh, he might have a little more top-end speed. But I don't think when the Broncos get to MetLife on September 12th, Javante Williams is going to be 
the the first down running back, assuming Gordon isn't suspended at all for his off field incident, uh, the DUI that got pled down to to less. Uh, if the league doesn't take him off the field for one, two, or three games, Melvin Gordon will be the workhorse certainly early. We're talking with Brandon Cristal, Broncos insider for KOA News Radio in Denver here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live as we preview the week one matchup between the Giants and the Broncos and the run game as well as the quarterback performance. Brandon is dependent on the play of the offensive line. And from what I understand, they have continuity working in their favor because Bobby Massey is really going to be the new guy in town at right tackle as they signed him from the Bears with Juwan James, unfortunately, suffering an injury. So how beneficial is the continuity factor? And how much of a step up do you think this offensive line needs to take, which was put under the microscope a bit last season? Yeah, and uh, I think that in large part they, they passed that test. Garrett Bowles specifically for a guy that was a first-round pick and everyone thought it was a reach when they took him. And, and every time there'd be a holding penalty coming, the Broncos fans would collectively hold their breath and then you're holding Broncos <laughs> number 72 and you would get the audible gasp or the sighs or whatever. And so it was, it was, oh, I think a, a big surprise to some and a pleasant surprise, uh, certainly to have Garrett Bowles play at such a high level and be rated. You know, I mentioned pro football focus. You can take or leave their ratings, but they rate everybody. And they had Garrett Bowles rated as one of the best tackles. Uh, he played, in, in a lot of people's opinion, at a Pro Bowl, all pro level and got rewarded for it. The, the Broncos, see, the Broncos know what they're looking at, especially with the Hall of Fame coach and Hall of Fame player, and potentially, I guess, the Hall of Fame O-line coach, and Mike Munchak, certainly uh, one of the best teachers at that position. They weren't going to give him that deal if they didn't think he earned it and was capable of playing like this every single year and, and living up to that first-round talent. And you got Dalton Reisner, who started pretty much every game since he was drafted a couple of years ago, one pick before Drew Locke. Uh, Lloyd Cushenberry had a rough year but played every single snap the only offensive player to do that at center out of LSU he put on some strength uh, he's going to hold off Quinn Miners who everyone's seen uh, the rookie out of Wisconsin Whitewater's belly but that's going to be he's pushing him uh, for a point in time <laughs> Graham Glasgow may not be around here very long but he's definitely going to be around here in year two of a four year $45 million contract or whatever it is because of the guaranteed money so you've got four starters back almost certainly and then Bobby Massey I know he's been a little injury-prone the last couple of years, but Vic Fangio saw him playing in Chicago. George Clinton, the GM, saw him as a, a guy that was obviously Rich Spielman's right-hand man with the Vikings. So they know what they have in Bobby Massey. And for Juwan James, who's maybe the worst free agent signing in the John Elway tenure, it's a battle between Heater, Menelik, Watson. He played 63 snaps, and he couldn't get on the field his first year. There were people in the building that told John Elway not to sign him, and he did anyway, and, and so... Then he opts out, apparently, as I heard someone say, after having COVID. Uh, he opted out last year, which which I just thought was interesting. He hurts himself away from the facility. He's going to be in a legal back and forth with the, with the uh, Broncos, I guess, lawyers. And so it'll be interesting to see how quickly Massey can come in. Uh, but losing James isn't much of a loss. Elijah Wilkinson, who played a lot, is now penciled in to start with the Bears. A little flip-flop there with, with Massey. But uh, if Massey can play up to, I guess, the expectation of a 10-year vet or whatever he is, 8, 9, 10-year vet, then the O-line is going to be better than, than they were in recent years, which is pretty wild because the O-line has been uh, the, a thorn in the Broncos' side. Just I guess if quarterback is 1A, and it certainly is, O-line play has been 1B in terms of the list of problems uh, in the post-Aiden Manning era. Granted, let's flip the coin to defense, and there's a new face this year that wasn't there last year, but he's an old face, and that's Von Miller. 
Uh, coming off that foot injury, he's more than a couple of years now removed from a double-digit sack season. He's clearly not the guy that he was a few years ago, but then again, who is? How much can they expect out of him this year? Can he be a difference maker once again? Oh, Paul, I think absolutely, and here's why. The injury was kind of a fluky thing. I, I know that an injury keeps you out for a year for a guy that's now into his 30s you're worried about, but he was having an offseason last year, that, and we saw him. Vaughn's certainly been a practice wrecker as much as he's wanted uh, in the decade he's been in the league, but almost at a different level last year, and so much so where they'd have to drop him into coverage just to keep him from, from ruining practice uh, over and over. And then for him to hurt that tendon in the very first practice of the regular season and miss the whole year when he was planning on having such a huge year, he's going to begin Bradley Chubb, uh, who was coming off the ACL, getting to play together. They'd only played four games. Chubb's first year, so now through two seasons, they've only played four games. But with Chubb earning a, a Pro Bowl nod as a starter, you've got these two guys kind of anchoring the, the defense in a lot of ways. Yes, there's a lot of other pieces and components to a big Fangio defense, certainly the secondary is focal point. But I, I won't be surprised if you have double-digit sacks from both of these guys, assuming they stay healthy. Vaughn's almost up to 100%. He was participating in team drills throughout the, the spring and, and the four or five weeks of OTAs and minicamp, and I expect him to hit the ground running. The Broncos picked up the option on his $18 million contract. They talked about a restructure. They talked about reworking it, and ultimately – I think new GM George Payton didn't want his first big move to be cutting the Super Bowl 50 MVP that a lot of people think has uh, plenty left in the tank. And Vaughn continues to talk about how young he feels and whether it's Michael Strahan, and you guys would know these numbers, or Bruce Smith or Reggie White or even DeMarcus Ware, uh, one of the years he was here. And we could just go down the list, Julius Peppers, Jason Taylor. Those elite Hall of Fame rarefied air pass rushers all had double-digit sacks, if not multiple times, at various points in their early to mid, and, and in some cases, even late 30s. So I think Von Miller has has plenty left to to give, and I'm hopeful that somebody who's really enjoyed covering him and would like to see him at least chase some records, he's going to have to play a full five or six years and really start racking up the sacks, but he wants to chase Bruce Smith's 200, uh, and he's, <laughs> you know, he's about 100 away, so he's got a lot. <laughs> No, but I, you know, I, I'd like to see him do it here in Denver. Uh, and so if Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson shows up or Drew Locke takes a big step or Teddy Bridgewater plays uncharacteristically better than he ever has because last year he only had 15 touchdowns and that was his most productive year ever, uh, then maybe Vaughn is in a hurry to re-sign. But otherwise, when that deal's up, I won't, it won't blow my mind if Vaughn does go somewhere else to finish out his career. But uh, it's a long answer to a short question. I think that, that Vaughn Miller should be poised for another big year. Well, Brandon, I think what's impressive about the Denver Broncos last season, even though Von Miller didn't play because of the ankle injury, they still had 42 total sacks. So they had at least some guys that stepped up. They had some piecemeal put together to get that sack production up. And that's now not even taking into consideration the secondary that they're working with. And I think that by far is probably the biggest development in Denver, as you can attest to. And I want to turn our attention there because they really have a nice mix of veterans. They bring in Kyle Fuller, who is with Vic Fangio in Chicago, Ronald Darby, a veteran who's been in the NFC East, and they draft Patrick Sertan II in the draft. So Having a lot of volume and depth is never a bad thing considering the injury rate in the NFL. How do you think they're going to utilize some of these new pieces? And how much is that, do you think, going to become the identity of this Denver defense? Uh, I, I think that it's going to, in a lot of ways, be the calling card. And so much so that people are trying to come up with nicknames because Chris Harris dubbed them the no-fly zone when it was Harris to leave. 
DJ Ward, Darian Thornton, Bradley Roby when they were helping them win Super Bowl 50 and had one of the best secondaries in football because with Roby, who was first round pick out of Ohio State, to leave in Harris, you had three starting corners on the field and then two hard hitting safeties with Ward being a pro bowler as well. And actually, I guess Darian Stewart made it one year too, now that I think about it. Uh, so even though you had Von Miller and Demarcus Ware up front, you had those guys in the back end. Well, now you had Justin Simmons, who was second team All Pro two years ago. A pro bowler this last year. He's now the highest paid safety in football. He hasn't missed a snap in, in three years. It has that streak going. Kareem Jackson, a hard hitter, who was a pro bowl alternate a couple of years ago and has settled in at safety. You mentioned Fuller. He was an all pro with Vic Fangio. Ronald Darby, who's certainly been injury prone, played more snaps than any corner in football last year. Sertan looks as good as advertised, and his teammates continue to rave about him or anybody that watches practice. Obviously, the son of a, a longtime pro, a pro bowler, and, and an all pro himself. Uh, he just carries himself the right way. And then the safety blanket for Vic Fangio is Bryce Callahan. The problem with Bryce Callahan is he hasn't finished the season the last three years. So I would think that by the time November, December rolls around, I'll be surprised if Bryce Callahan's on the field because there's empirical data to say that he can't finish <laughs> the year. But if not, they're going to have to come up with some four-corner uh, formations because you're going to want all those guys on the field. There's some coverages where they're all out there, but that'll allow you to play more man which will make it easier for the pass rush and vice versa. They'll kind of work hand in hand. But I, I think in talking to people who have spent more time around Big Fangio defenses than I have, they say that the secondary, you look at as good as Khalil Mack was, but what the Bears were doing on the back end when it was Fuller and Eddie Jackson and Adrian Amos and those guys, that's what allowed that Bears defense fix last year in Chicago to be really special. And so I do think the secondary will be the calling card. The biggest thing, though, and, and this is something I'm sure you guys have covered coaches that'll tell you, they still have to get their takeaway numbers up. They don't force turnovers. Forcing turnovers means the offense made a mistake. They're saying they are taking the ball away, that the defense is making a play. Both that Donatel, uh, the defensive coordinator, and Vic Fangio uh, stress that all the time, that they need more takeaways, not forcing turnovers, but they need to get the ball back. The big names on defense are the pass rushers and the secondary. You just went over those guys, Brandon, but it all starts, obviously, with stopping the run. The Broncos were better at doing that last year than they had been before, but how do you see them holding up this season? Well, it's actually really remarkable because Mike Purcell, who's a guy that grew up in Denver and plays college ball in Wyoming, had been cut 10 times and had bounced all around. But he was with Dick Fangio in, in San Fran for a little bit a few years back and then with him in Chicago for a year. So after going to the AAF when they brought him in, Fangio famously told John Elway, like, be careful because you may end up liking him. So they inserted him into the lineup two years ago in game five against the Chargers, and it made a huge difference in the run D. So last year, through four or five games, they were playing really well. They give Purcell a nice three-year, $18 million deal, and for a, a local guy who was supposed to becoming a fireman, I don't know how he would have fit a fire truck, but he's a nose tackle in the NFL. Nonetheless, uh, he anchors that D. He got hurt right at, literally the week after he signed the contract, but he appears to be on track to be back. I had him on the Shelby Harris podcast. Shelby Harris had a career year. That's why the Broncos gave him a three-year, $27 million deal. Draymond Jones knows he needs to get better against the run. That's a third-rounder out of Ohio State from a couple of years ago and was better against the run, especially as the year went on, because he was one of the few guys that had to play over and over. Then they have this young kid, McTelvin Aguim, they call Sosa, who is a third-rounder out of Arkansas from a year ago that because of those injuries to Purcell and Shelby and Jarrell Casey, who could never really get going, he got hurt in, in week three as well. Uh, the five-time Pro Bowler is no longer here. That allowed those young guys to play a lot more. So uh, between those guys and the, and the run stoppers, Alexander Johnson, who's uh, on a restricted deal, and Josie Jewell, who took Todd Davis' job a year ago, those guys both had over 100 tackles. 
Vic Fangio's defenses are, are stout against the run typically, and, and these guys weren't last year. So if they're all healthy and they appear to be heading in, uh, I think that you'll see another solid run defense. And then I don't think people give Von Miller and Bradley Chubb enough credit, especially Von Miller in his career because of the sack numbers and the pressures. He's been really good against the run in recent years too. So I think that their run support uh, should, should be pretty good when you talk about our you know, run defense and support from the secondary and the linebackers. Uh, I, I won't expect them to get run all over, assuming, like I said, everybody stays healthy. With respect to special teams, that tends to be a facet, Brandon, that is overlooked more often than not, especially when you have a team that has a really good defense and maybe a team that really needs to take a step up on the offensive side of the ball. Special teams can help you in that regard or could come back and haunt you. I know the punter and the kicker are back in terms of the return game. Deshaun Hamilton obviously is no longer in the mix. Where do you see the upside of their special teams perhaps making a difference for them this season? Well, the the biggest key there is going to be the roster depth. And when they were down to their ninth and 10th corners and, and down to a bunch of receivers way down the depth chart, sign up the practice squad, well, you can figure, uh, what does that do to your special teams, right? And so you had a bunch of guys that maybe aren't even necessarily NFL caliber players, right? Or the old the old label in baseball, they're 4A players. They're not really AAA, but they're not really major leaguers. I think that played some of their coverage units. Uh, Brandon McManus was good, but missed a couple last year after signing another extension that keep him as one of the highest-paid kickers in football. They brought in Sam Martin, who punted really well. They had competition for him. This week, Tom McMahon, the special teams coach, said they like this kid Max Duffy out of Kentucky, who we were watching put the ball inside the two, and then literally the next day they cut him. So they must have not liked him too much. Uh, but Martin was, was one of the bright spots. And when you're as bad on offense as the Broncos have been, you want a punter that can put the ball uh, where it needs to go. And so when the coverage didn't break down, they were they – were, Pretty good because of Martin's punting, especially at home in the thin Rocky Mountain air. And then they had Deontay Spencer back as their returner, and he was a Pro Bowl alternate two years ago. It's a kid that spent the first four years out of college in the CFL and, and setting some records up there. Had a nice first year, and last year finally took one to the house, I want to say, against Carolina, if memory serves me right. And so they're pretty solid there. Of course, you always want to look for a guy that can help you on offense, be your returner versus just carrying a 53rd spot just a return man but that's what they have with Spencer right now uh the the biggest I guess surprise to a lot of people that Tom McMahon the special teams coordinator kept his job Uh, but this is a guy that's a survivor and he's coached for a long time and he's with the Colts for a long time he's now I guess in year four if my math is right uh because he came in in Vance Joseph's final year and I'm guessing that George Payton the the new GM and John Elway who as he was moving up to uh the figurehead role that he's in Vic Fangio specifically looked at all the factors that went into why the coverage units had breakdowns last year and weren't ready to just blame McMahon completely, knew that it was a personnel issue. Because if they thought it was his approach, then he probably would be gone. And Vic Fangio's coached long enough that I'm sure he can find other special teams coordinators that he's worked with or get a recommendation from coaches he trusts. So with Tom McMahon back, uh, the only really the only direction as a whole, if you ask certainly Broncos fans and those of us who cover the team, uh, the only direction for that special teams unit to go is up. Final question for me, Brandon. Pat Shermer was head coach of the Giants before he went out to become the offensive coordinator out there in Denver. From what you've seen of his offense, what can the Giants expect to see in week one when he comes back here? Is it going to be the same kind of stuff that they saw when Shermer was here in Big Blue, or is it going to be something that he has decided to tweak a little bit since he's gone out west? There may be some tweaks and some creativity, and I think especially using Drew Locke's athleticism, we saw a play uh, the other day that was a run-pass option where everyone bit down on Melvin Gordon thinking on the goal line that's 
that's where the ball was going. Drew Locke, pretty good play action, maybe not to Steve DeBerg's level, uh, but really good play action, rolls right, and then a wide open just little dump off. Uh, you know, he probably could have walked it in himself too if he wanted, uh, but uh, one of the receivers, Tyree Cleveland, plays like that we did not see last year. No one was accusing Pat Shermer of, of reinventing offenses in the National Football League, and, and maybe that's okay. What's interesting is that when he was brought in, he's obviously part of the Andy Reid tree, and John Elway, who I think had a lot to do with it, was a little impulsive. He went away from the Kyle Shanahan version of this West Coast offense, and that's why he had Rich Gangarello a couple of years ago and wanted an offense that looked like what Patrick Mahomes was doing in Kansas City. Well, the difference is that you know you had some Matt Nagy putting his fingerprints on that with Andy Reid as they were evolving it. I think Andy taking some stuff from the college game and and using what Patrick did well with the Chiefs. I'm not sure Pat Shermer has gone that far down the, the rabbit hole, if you will, in terms of, of creativity. Uh, so, again, a long answer to a short question. Paul, well, I think you'll see a lot of the similar things that you saw with the Giants offense, you know, a lot of single back and, and stuff like that. You, very little use of the fullback. Probably not as much too tight end as they'll use later in the year when Alberto is healthy. It'll just be a lot of three receiver sets, and they'll run the ball out of that or try to. Uh, and hope that Drew Locke doesn't throw an interception. He, he threw a lot of almost all of the interceptions were in three receiver sets. But that's kind of the bulk of, of Pat Shermer's offense. So at least yeah. what we've seen so far, that's what it'll look like, I suppose. Uh, if he wants to get more creative, great. Broncos country will welcome that. I know I certainly will. Uh, but I, I don't think you'll see him reinventing the wheel. I don't think you'll see offensive linemen spread off the ball or, or a lot of five wide empty sets with Pat Shermer, uh, at least in week one in, uh, in that life. Brandon, before we let you go, just a big picture question, because as you can attest to the turnover rate of the NFL is absolutely ridiculous. And usually coaches get these two to three year windows. And if they don't take care of business, all of a sudden there's change again. Vic Fangio, this is year three now. And I know there's been some uncertainty at the quarterback position, but big picture, how critical of a year is this for him and his staff in terms of proving to the new general manager who just came in that they should maintain continuity here moving forward? I think it's it's absolutely critical. I think they need to be over 500. They need to win nine games, and I think Vegas has about seven and a half, uh, give or take. And so, in, in a 17 game season, you very rarely you can have 500 teams. I'm not saying we won't see some eight, eight and ones, uh, but you can't. Uh, if they're eight and nine and they're bit by the injury bug, and whomever's playing quarterback doesn't look like the reason that they are losing or the sole reason, then, then he probably keeps his job. But he had seven wins his first year, if my math is right, and then had five wins in year two. Well, you can't live in that five, six, seven win world with this roster. This roster in a lot of ways reminds me of the Chiefs when they had Alex Smith. Alex Smith, I think, is, is maybe better than where he's maybe the best version of Teddy Bridgewater. We'll see where Drew Lott gets, but he's not where Alex Smith was. And then you insert Patrick Mahomes and you're able to take it to another level. So it, it really is when you get past the quarterbacks, I think a nice roster. We obviously covered uh, the really the entirety of it, uh, but we also need to see the way Vic manages games. And even last year, I'm sure you guys saw that opener against the Titans at the end of the game yeah. on Monday Night Football. He's calling the defense, and then he admitted he forgot to call timeout because he's worried about calling the defense. You can't have those mistakes now in year three as a head coach, uh, especially when you've coached as much football as he has. So he can't have things like that happen. There has to be notable progress uh George Payton, like you mentioned, new GM, six-year deal. So he'll be around unless the team gets sold and a new owner comes in and says they want a new GM and new coach. But 
most rich people don't get rich by just making knee-jerk moves all the time. So if there were to be a new owner, or even if one of the bowling kids, and it's like his uh, daughter Brittany uh, that will take over, they're probably not firing George Payton. But if he wants to fire Vic Fangio, uh, I think he'll have more than uh, enough leeway to do so. So it's be a, a huge year for Vic, which also I think informs potentially the quarterback competition uh, because you know what Teddy Bridgewater is, you know what he isn't. He isn't a guy that's going to lose you a lot of games. He's just not going to go win you a lot of games. Yeah, it's fascinating in terms of the decision-making at quarterback, especially if job security for the coaching staff is on the line. It'll be very interesting. The Giants and the Broncos square off in week one to kick off the 2021 campaign. He is Brandon Cristal, Broncos insider for KOA News Radio in Denver, and you can check out his new podcast with Broncos defensive end Shelby Harris. Brandon, can't thank you enough. Greatly appreciate the time and the insight. We look forward to talking down the road, and stay safe and healthy moving forward here this offseason. Great stuff, Brandon. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Lance. This was a lot of fun, and I look forward to uh, talking to you guys and uh, seeing you for the opener there in the Meadowlands. Absolutely. Our pleasure. That was Brandon Cristal, the Broncos insider for KOA Radio in Denver, weighing in on what to expect from the Denver Broncos. We appreciate everybody tuning in to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live as we start our opponent previews. And Paul, before we get into our takeaways from the Denver Broncos, just want to remind the audience that limited giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just $100, call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. So we'll provide our takeaways of the Denver Broncos, and then we're going to answer some of your mailbag questions that you submitted through Giants.com. We certainly appreciate that. A reminder, all of our shows are pre-recorded this week. We will return to live programming next week. So Denver, Paul, is a very interesting team. And I don't want to say they're identical to the Giants, but I do find that there's some parallels between both of these teams, especially after having the conversation with Brandon, because you look at a team, a quarterback entering year three, expectations are raised. The talent is not as young anymore around him. The offensive line has a little bit more experience. They're getting some guys back from injury. They have a really good defense that played well even without Von Miller last season. What I'm getting at is they're, to me, in just as much of a crossroads area as the Giants are as they look to take the next step forward. I think crossroads is really a great way to describe that team. And I think, you know, to some degree, you're right. The Giants are in a similar situation. I think they're a little bit better off because I do think that we've seen more of a sample size of Daniel Jones than we've seen of Drew Locke. And I do think that his upside seems to be a little bit higher to this point where there's more optimism for him. But nonetheless, I agree with you in that they would basically be in the same supermarket shelf. Uh, Teams that are, you know, approaching that 500 mark, looking to get over 500, looking to become a playoff team, thinking that maybe, maybe this is the year they can do it, and certainly hoping that this is the year that they can do it. So I I would agree with you in that regard. Certainly a a beatable opponent for the Giants to open the season with, opening day at MetLife Stadium. You'd certainly rather do that than have to face somebody like Kansas City or Tampa Bay. 
Sure, or a Pittsburgh team that they met right at the beginning of last no season, doubt. right? And you knew that that's a team that more often than not makes the playoffs. So this is not necessarily as much of an established powerhouse. The Broncos were 5-11 and last season. They finished last in their division. Once again, it was a season plagued by injuries and obviously some changes in and out of the lineup with respect to the quarterback position. But I will say this, if there's one facet of this team that is strong and is going to be quite the test Paul, for the Giants right out of the gate, they are going to see a premier defense because the Broncos added a lot of veterans, specifically in the secondary, as we spoke with Brandon about. They used their top pick on Patrick Sertan the second, and Von Miller, you know, this is a guy that already knows the scheme. He was hurt last season. It's no different than the Giants getting a Saquon Barkley back or a Nate Solder on the offensive line. You tend to forget about those players because they weren't in the mix last season, but Denver is improving from outside sources, but they're also improving because they're getting some of the usual names back. Well, I think to be frank with you, Lance, I understand what you're saying about the secondary. It's a good secondary. It's got a mixture of young and old. So I, I think the blend is going to help them be very strong this year. But ultimately, when you talk about matchups and what's going to test the Giants on that September 12th afternoon, you've got to look at the Broncos' potential pass rush. If Von Miller is right, as we just heard Brandon Miller say he thinks he is Wow. Okay, this this is another dynamic duo with Chubb and Miller that right out of the gate are going to test that Giants offensive line and especially on the edges and tell those guys, okay, you better be ready because if you're not, week one could turn ugly very quickly. There's no doubt about it in terms of making sure your house is in order so that you could buy Daniel Jones time and this offense can get comfortable. And I hate going back in time, but I'm reminded again of the Steelers game, how they opened up 2020. Because think about this, Paul. Who do they get right out of the gates? They get TJ Watt and Bud Dupree, right? And we were talking about it all offseason. Hey, this offense, it's going to be quite the challenge. And then even some of the games that followed, remember you had the Chicago Bears with Khalil Mack and the list goes on and on. Maybe it's not as bad early on this season after the initial matchup, but to your point, Von Miller, Bradley Chubb, okay, you even got to throw in Shelby Harris, they've got a number of guys who were able to fill in admirably when Miller was hurt last season. Now you're adding Miller to that deck up front in their front seven. We're going to learn a lot, and this is not going to define the Giants season, okay? I don't want to go that far, but I think we're going to learn a lot what the Giants get out of training camp in their preseason games and how much battle-tested those guys up front were in terms of how they could handle a Denver pass rush that has a lot of veterans. It's not as if, unlike the secondary with Patrick Sertan II, that they're anticipating some young guy to all of a sudden wow them. Chubb and Von Miller have had a few years already in the NFL. Well, I think it's fair to say, Lance, if you look at the Giants' schedule, their first two games are, are going to be a chore. I mean, when you look at the fact that you've got those two guys on the Broncos, then you've got Washington in Week 2, and we know how good their front and their yep. edge rushers are. That, that's, that's a heck of a way to start. Now, if you can get out of the blocks quickly and hold your own against those two guys, well, to be frank with you, I look at the next months of schedule, and I say to myself – Okay, now that offensive line can kind of catch its breath, start to gel, start to grow. And, and I don't necessarily know that, that I see anybody there that, that gives me the shivers. Okay, but those first two games, right out of the block, they are going to have to hold their own. And bite your tongue 
And, and you know, if you have any criticisms after what you see in the first two games, folks, I would only say this. It does get a little bit easier after that. These first two games could be tough, but as Lance just said, it'd be a great litmus test if they could hold their own and pass the test of the first two weeks of the season. Because if they do, that should bode very well for this offensive line as it continues to grow together each and every week. Well, and also to see what the offense can produce because, see, another thing that I think is somewhat similar between these two teams, the Giants, well-documented, they only averaged 17.5 points per game. Well, Denver, Paul, was not that far ahead of the Giants. Denver only averaged 20.2 points per game. They were 28th in the NFL. So this is an offense that also did a lot of leaning on its defense to keep them competitive and in the thick of things within sure. games. So and special I, teams, Lance. 100%, too. yes. Special teams as well. So I guess what I'm getting at is not only are we going to learn a lot about the offensive line specifically, but I think we're also going to get an idea of, hey, if the offense overall can produce against a defense that is in relatively good shape, you hope Denver obviously doesn't suffer any injuries between now and the start of the season, that maybe that is a sign of what's yet to come for an offense that wants to do much better than 17.5 points per game. And Denver's fan base is going to be saying the same thing because you're going up against the Giants' defense that played much better in the second half of the season. And if Drew Locke performs very well, I think they're probably saying the same thing. Hey, you know, that Giants' defense caused some havoc for opponents. We were able to put X amount of points on. So I think both offenses overall can walk away with maybe a positive feeling depending on the outcome of that game. Yeah, I think the safest way to look at this, Lance, is that if things go well, you could certainly read something into that. If they don't go so well, I don't think you can read as much into it because of the strength of the opponents on the other side of the matchup. And, you know, I I would say this. If I were the Giants, and I'm not Jason Garrett, thank goodness for that, right? The fans (laughs) would just go nuts if I was the offense. Well, and you would add a lot of stress on your life too, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) But if I were Jason Garrett, to be frank with you, yes, do I want to see Daniel Jones get off to a good start and hit some big plays and kind of, you know, make sure that I spark the offense to get some early points, to give them confidence, to give people a feeling that this is a different season? I totally understand that. But to be frank with you, I think I'd really love to see the running game get going against these two teams, knowing what they've got against the pass, the ability to pressure the quarterback and and do some nasty things with their pass rush. I mean, I don't know what Saquon Barkley's status is going to be opening day, but what a great opportunity for Booker or Clement or Armstead. I mean, whoever winds up carrying the rock, what a great opportunity for them. If the Giants can tell that offensive line, look, we know it's easier to run block than it is to pass block. So let's take some pressure off of you and let's game plan with a heavy dose of power running. And let's see if we can get you guys out of the blocks quickly, gain you some momentum, and at the same time, give some of these running backs an opportunity to show if they can really help this running back's room. To be frank with you, that's where I would go. I would love to see that happen. I don't know that they will do it that way, 
but I would really give serious consideration to a game plan built around the run. Well, and the way that I would read into that, if that does come to fruition, Paul, is that that is a positive sign that it's somewhat of a continuation of last season because, once again, I think the Giants ran the ball effectively last season. It didn't necessarily translate to touchdowns, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that they had a number of games where they were able to move the ball okay, within those 20-yard lines successfully. And they did it mainly with Wayne Goleman, who is no longer in the picture. So if Saquon, let's say, is not ready to go or you don't want to give him a full load, as you alluded to, Paul, and we're not indicating anything, we're just speculating at this point. So everybody calm down. Don't get nervous. <laughs> we're not telling you that he's not going to be available. You sent them into a frenetic mess there, Lance. Well, that's why I am making it crystal clear that we're not going down that road. But there will be another running back that's not named Wayne Goldman, who's going to compliment Saquon Barkley, no matter how you look at it. So if they're able to do what you're hoping to see, I would think that would be perhaps a nice sign of maybe what's yet to come. On the flip side, though, and I'm glad you brought up the run game, Denver is saying the same thing. Because if you have a quarterback, let's say in Drew Locke, who is your starter week one, who is still young, still getting a feel for Pat Shermer's offense now this second straight year, and you have Melvin Gordon, who Brandon indicated he believes he'll be the workhorse, but they'll look to mix in Javante Williams. They could have a one-two punch just like they had. Remember, Philip Lindsay was the complement to Melvin Gordon, and Lindsay signed with the Houston Texans this offseason. So that's why Javante Williams is going to come in and replace Philip Lindsay. Denver going up against a Giants team, Paul, that just lost Dalvin Tomlinson, who signed with the Vikings. You know, there's some question marks about can the Giants' run defense be as effective as we saw it last season with some of the usual guys still getting opportunities, but you no longer have the staple of Dalvin Tomlinson in the middle there. Right. Well, this is why guys like Johnson and Shelton in particular are going to have to show right out of the gate that they can indeed step up to a level that will allow the Johnson, uh, the Giants not to miss uh, Dalvin Tomlinson. Look, I don't think there's any doubt. There will be a bit of a drop-off at that position. Tomlinson was a very good player, okay? He wasn't dominating, but he was very good. The Giants just want to be able to have good come out of that position. Really, that, that's all they need. The rest of the defense is so strong and so deep that if that one spot on the defensive line just plays good or well, that's enough. That, that means this overall defense, with the other parts that they have added on the outside and in the secondary, should be even better than it was last year. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I just think what can't be overlooked, and this is not me trying to be a Debbie Downer, is sometimes we look at depth more and we don't focus on the impact one individual specifically had. And Dalvin is the type of player that I would argue, you look at his statistics, and most people who never watched a Giants game, Paul, if they were just looking at Dalvin Tomlinson, they would say, all right, hey, that's not a notable loss. He barely had any sacks. He didn't have a number of wow-me stats. But then you right. look at those guys, Paul, that they're the glue guys on the team. Others feed off of them. He draws double teams that open up opportunities off the edge for some of the pass rushers. Tomlinson fit that bill. So when you remove a player like that, that's not to say that you have somebody that can't do the dirty work, like a Danny Shelton, who's a big guy who's going to be quite the presence. But until we see it consistently, I just don't take it for granted. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Well, the only thing that I can say about Shelton is that 
you know, he's played in some winning systems. Obviously, we know his time in New England. We understand that uh, he's had some very productive seasons. When you consider a nose tackle, twice has had more than 50 tackles in a year. That's, that's a productive number for, for a guy who's playing that position. That's, that's a nice number. Quite often, those players will have anywhere between maybe 30 tackles, 35 tackles, maybe 40. Twice he's gone over 50. So that, that does tell you that, uh, hey, you know what? When he's in there uh, clogging up that front line, yeah, he's getting his hands on guys. And that's a good thing. See, because here's the thing about nose tackles. Unlike a linebacker or a corner or specifically a safety who can compile high tackle stats on poor teams because they'll say, well, there was nobody else to make the tackle. By default, the guys in the back seven have to make the tackles because the guys up front weren't very good. And they'll tell you that those numbers are inflated and they don't really mean a hill of beans. People will tell you that. And sometimes it's actually true. Well, you can't say that about a nose tackle. If a nose tackle is making 50 tackles or 60 tackles in a season, that tells you he's been doing the work, Lance. Yeah, he's been making contact very early in the play as opposed to letting it for the other guys to clean up on the back end. And that's what Shelton, you know, Shelton's had two of those seasons. And, you know, I, I look at that. I'm even, even only two years ago with the Patriots. He had 61 tackles and, and three sacks. I mean, you think the Giants wouldn't sign up for 61 tackles tomorrow? Something tells me they'd be quite content with that. I'm actually, you know who I'm bringing up as you were looking through Danny Shelton's numbers? I'm bringing up Snacks' stats just to utilize as perhaps a comparison because Snacks was a guy that made quite the impact when he first joined the Giants, and he was a guy that you knew was going to help eat up space and stop the run. So Snacks, his first season with the Giants in 2016, he recorded 86 tackles that year, 55 solo. That's a ton for yeah. a nose tackle. And he followed that up, by the way, in 2017. And I know the Giants' defense took a step back. It wasn't necessarily because of snacks. He had 76 total tackles. He had 51 solo. So he stayed consistent snacks in those first two full seasons with the Giants. And again, you're comparing Shelton now to a guy who may have been, over the last 10 years, the premier run-stopping nose tackle in the game. So it's, it's no shame to say, well, Snacks has had a couple of, of 70 and 80 tackle seasons and Shelton's only had a, a couple of 50 and 60 tackle seasons. That's not to shame Shelton at all. But by, by comparison, you, you're telling people that guys at that spot who can make a substantial number of tackles can certainly have an impact on a defense. Yeah. Well, I think the reason why we're throwing these numbers out, Paul, is I think you'd like to know what is a standard, right? Snacks was first-team All-Pro in 2016. So if a guy earns first-team All-Pro, what would you expect statistically out of that nose tackle position? Okay, so we're saying the standard is you get 86 total tackles, 55 solo, and then he also had two and a half sacks, by the way, which to me is icing on the cake. If your nose tackle gives you a few sacks, hey, you'll take that. That's fantastic. Sure, but sure. you get 50-plus tackles solo out of your nose tackle, and he gets in that area of 75 to 80 tackles, that is a heck of a season. Now, we're not saying Premier, that Danny Shelton Premier. needs to do that, but, hey, if he could do that, the Giants will gladly take that and run to the bank with that. I'm sure that there are people out there listening right now saying, well, what did Tomlinson do for the Giants? And I can rattle off those numbers That's for a you. fair Just comparison as well. Up, yeah. Right? And he never missed a game, by the way. 
Let's let's make that clear. Tomlinson's and that has value, by the way. Yeah. was a very valuable part of his game. 50, 59, 49, and 49 are his total tackle numbers over his four years with the Giants. Again, as I said, a very good player. Well, to be frank with you, okay, I don't know that it's too much to ask of Danny Shelton to have at least 40 tackles this year. I'm with you. I'm completely with you. Yeah. I don't think that's crazy at all. Because if Dalvin got in that 50 to 59 territory over the course of his four seasons, and we're saying he played every single game. So it's not as if, you know, one season the numbers dip because he missed five games. He was consistently in the lineup. You knew you get 50 tackles out of Dalvin Tomlinson. And that's his totals that we're talking about. And remember, Dalvin Tomlinson's not a pro bowler. Dalvin Tomlinson's not a first-team all-pro. So we were giving you the standard of what Snacks said, okay? That was Snacks playing at a all-pro level. So if you were wondering, well, what did Dalvin provide? Well, Dalvin provided below Snacks, but there was a consistent level. And that's what I think is important to highlight about Dalvin, Paul, meaning the Giants' defensive coordinators over the years, they said to themselves when they're going into the season— 50 tackles out of Dalvin, you could pretty much pen that in. Hey, if he gets you 60, we'll gladly take that. But you have an idea Dalvin's going to give you two, two and a half sacks, 50 tackles. That's what you're probably going to get out of the guy in the middle. Agreed. And, of course, that other factor that we mentioned a moment ago, you know he'll suit up for you every Which is extremely week. important, yes. And, and I, you know, can't say enough about Dalvin Tomlinson. Great guy, a co-captain, terrific player, Wish him very well in Minnesota. But again, like the long list of Giants defensive tackles who put up some really good tape and then wound up leaving via free agency, they always seem to have another guy in the pipeline who can get the job done. And let's hope for the Giants' sake that even though Shelton is a veteran and not a newcomer per se, let's hope that he can do a good enough job just to hold down the fort. Speaking of what lies ahead, let's transition to answering some of your mailbag questions. Remember, all of our shows are pre-recorded this week, so we are unable to take phone calls, but you can continue to submit your questions into Giants.com, and you could also send them into social media on Twitter using hashtag GiantsChat. So this first question, Paul, comes from Abe in New York. Do you think Aziz Ojolari will be able to hit the ground running or will it take him some time to acclimate to the NFL? Well, I think we both realize that rookies have a very difficult time making a dramatic impact in their first season. And especially, to be frank with you, if you've looked at the last, I don't know, five or six years, rookie pass rushers have, have really kind of struggled in that first season and needed a second season before they started to put up some numbers. I mean, even last year, I mean... Chase Young, for as great as he was coming out of school, what did he have last year, Lance? Seven and a half sacks. And that led all rookie pass rushers. Seven and a half. So are we going to sit here and tell everybody that Ojolari is going to have eight, nine, ten sacks right out of the gate? I think that would be very foolish. To be honest, we've seen guys like Ziminez, you know, come out of the box and get four. Uh, is you know is that probably a more realistic number four five or six? Yeah, I'd say that's more realistic. Now I don't want to put a lid on this guy, this kid. Sure, I, you know like, nobody ever wants to do that. I mean, my goodness, you know Lawrence Taylor came in had had nine right away as a rookie in '81. 
So I, I don't want to cap Ojolari. Wow, I'm stunned by the way that you're throwing out Lawrence Taylor's name in this conversation because no, you know no, how no, protective I... you are about LT in comparisons. Well, the reason so. that I say that is because, yes, there are outliers who do come in as rookies and make a dramatic impact right away. He certainly is one of them because he's the greatest defensive player who's ever set foot on a football field. So he's an outlier. I don't know if Ojolari is, 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 is going to play the majority of the snaps. If I think more likely he'll be a substitutional player in pass-rushing situations, and they'll probably tell him, you've got one responsibility. When we put you in there, go after the quarterback. And if he's really good at it, then he'll pile up some decent numbers, understanding that he's going to be in situations where that's what they want him to do. But, I, you know, how, how much of an impact he can have right away, I'm, I'm going to pull back just a little bit and say, I hope he can be part of the puzzle. How about that? I think that's a fair expectation. i just looking up Chase Young's numbers, because once again, I think for the state of context and comparison, it's good to at least know the snap counts and it's something to utilize as a means of comparison here. Chase Young played just below 74% of Washington's defensive snaps. That was 770 snaps. Now, the reason I'm throwing that out is because I think you hit on an important aspect here, Paul. How many snaps does Aziz Ojolari play as a rookie? Okay, is Patrick Graham going to rotate these guys? By the time we get six or seven weeks into the season, does Ojolari carve out a bigger role? Remember, a lot of these guys rotated last season, and you got Lorenzo Carter and O'Shane Zimenez coming back, who we referenced earlier. So the reason why expectations have to be kept in check to a certain degree, we have no idea what he's operating with in terms of workload. And if you don't know workload and you can't tell me that he's an every down player or he's an every down pass rush player, then all bets are off in terms of what truly that is going to translate to. Because Chase Young, the other thing I wanted to point out, he was the number two overall pick. Now, I know, Paul, in fairness, Aziz Ojolari was considered the number one pass rusher. Unfortunately, he fell. Well, not unfortunate for the Giants because they're obviously <laughs> content that Be he dropped. careful there, Lance. Correct. But the point is that at least the facts, there is a distinct difference between number two overall and 50th overall. So yes. if you're saying that that was what Chase Young produced, and by all standards, he had a pretty damn solid rookie season. We're not poo-pooing on him, okay? He was very impressive. I thought he was very impressive. But if that was what he was able to do, and he played 770 snaps, then if you're talking about somebody that went a little bit lower on in the draft, and you have no idea what the snap count is going to be, once again, I think you have to at least keep expectations in check. Well... I will go a step further. I mentioned Chase Young had seven and a half last year to lead all rookies. Do you know who the second leading rookie sack artist was last season? Alton Robinson, the defensive end from Seattle, who had a whopping four sacks. Wow. That's it. And there were plenty of guys that went ahead of him, by the way, in terms of the draft. Well, that's my point. Yeah. That's my point. More often than not, Okay, you, although it was not a good year, let's not kid ourselves. We all knew going into the 2020 draft it was not going to be a terrific year for pass rushers. But the point still stands that more often than not, your rookie pass rushers are not going to pile up big numbers. I think the goal for Ojolari is let him get opportunities in the rotation. Hopefully the playing time increases as the season progresses Number one, which I should have let off with, he stays healthy. Okay, that's another important indication, sure. right, of how well your rookie year goes. And 
to get more and more comfortable with the level of talent on the offensive line in the NFL. As great as the SEC is, remember, this is still a significant step up when you go from the best college conference to the National Football League. So that can't be overlooked. Let's squeeze in one more mailbag question before we wrap things up, and let's go to the opposite side of the football. This comes from Travis in New York. With a young athletic offensive line, will Jason Garrett use a more screen-friendly playbook this year, especially with what Saquon Barkley could do, as well as the addition of Kadarius Toney? I don't think that's a reach at all. I mean, considering the fact that we know what Barkley can do with the ball when he gets it in space, and he caught 91 passes as a rookie, Uh, I do think they will look to get him the ball more uh, out on the edges and away from some of the traffic. And I think we've all said for months now that Kadarius Toney's the kind of guy who you want to get in space. So they would be crazy if they didn't run some wide receiver screens, some end-arounds, circle screens. I think Kadarius Toney, even if he's got a limited playbook, Lance, I suspect most of those plays are designed to get him out in the open. Yeah, I think that's a very fair takeaway. Plus, the reason why I don't think it's a stretch, and I wholeheartedly agree with you, Paul, look at what the Giants did this past season, and they didn't have Saquon Barkley or Kadarius Toney on the field. Now, I'm not saying that it was overwhelming, but if you look at how Jason Garrett utilized Evan Ingram out of the backfield, Sterling Shepard, remember, ran in for a score on a reverse, and Golden Tate was utilized as a passer. And you know Toney has a skill set where he could probably contribute in all those areas I just named. And Barkley, as you laid out, put up monster numbers as a receiver during his rookie year when they clearly tried to get him out in open space. So I think Garrett has already established that within his playbook when he's lacked some of the prolific offensive weapons that he's hopefully going to have at his disposal this season. So my point is, if Garrett could tap into that last year, then why would he hesitate in trying to expand that this season with much improved talent? Well, the only way that he wouldn't, Lance, is if this offensive line Bingo. shows that they don't have the chemistry and the mobility. That's the wild card. Yep. To execute those kinds of plays. Because if you've got lumbering linemen who aren't able to get off the line of scrimmage with athleticism, and I don't think that's the case with this team. I do think these guys have some athleticism, and I think they are going to be capable of, of getting out to where they need to be to make these blocks and to make these plays work. The question for me isn't so much their athleticism. It's going to be their their chemistry and their gelling because that's what you need even more so. The athleticism is nice. You know, you certainly got to be able to at least get out there. But if the guys aren't doing it in unison and making the proper blocks and coming at a defense in a wave, well, that's a problem. Because now you're leaving gaps and spaces for defensive backs and linebackers and even defensive linemen to shoot through and blow up your play. And we've seen that, unfortunately, sometimes in recent history with the Giants. And that's why it goes back to, even from a big picture perspective, as great as talent appears to look on paper on either side of the ball, but specifically on offense, if the offensive line does not act according to plan, All of those tricks you have up your sleeve, if you're an offensive coordinator, you put that back on the end of the playbook until you know that the house is in order up front. So that clearly is going to be the X factor to determine whether or not, to the questioner's point, 
we'll see more volume in that department with respect to screen passes and so forth. So that is going to wrap things up for us here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody tuning in and continue to send in questions like that through the Giants.com mailbag as well as hashtag Giants chat on Twitter. We will continue to preview other Giants opponents the rest of the week, so stay tuned for that. Paul, always a blast going back and forth. We'll carry this on later this week. You got it, Lance. Always good to talk to you. And a reminder that today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is part of the Giants Podcast Network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday and stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.